Good morning, everyone. While you're making your way to 2 Samuel chapter 3, the late Kelly Johnson was the lead engineer at the Lockheed Advanced Development Projects. They developed the and manufactured the S-71 Blackbird spy plane and many other notable achievements. But he told the designers at Lockheed that whatever they made, it had to be something that could be repaired by a man in the field with basic mechanics training and very simple tools. If their products weren't simple and easy to understand, they would quickly become obsolete in combat conditions and thus worship, and thus worthless, sorry. <laughs> Kelly Johnson is credited with coining the phrase, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, we know it today as the KISS principle, right? How simple were the instructions that were given to Adam and Eve in the garden? They were very simple. How simple were the Ten Commandments given to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai? They were very simple. Since the Garden of Eden, since the giving of the Ten Commandments, God's people have notoriously complicated what he has made simple. And we see this over the centuries, over and over again. The issue in 2 Samuel chapter 3 The issue was not discerning God's will. Everybody knew that. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't what God desired or anything like that, and it's still that way today. What God desires, God's will, it's not vague, it's not ambiguous, it's not like you got to have, it's not some Hebrew or Greek, you know, thing that you've got to somehow tap into that to to tap into what it is that God desires. It's not that at all. The issue is just that we just complicate things. We do. In marriage, in relationships, uh, we do that. So today we're talking about keeping it simple. Just keeping it simple. Let's just keep it simple. Notice I didn't say keep it simple. Okay? We're just going to keep it simple. 2 Samuel 3, verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee, to bring about all Israel unto thee. And he said, Well, I will make a league with thee, but one thing I require of thee, that is, thou shalt not see my face, except thou first bring Michal, Saul's daughter. When thou comest to see my face, and David sent messengers to Esbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife Michal, which I espoused to me for an hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Esbosheth sent and took her from her husband, even from Paltiel, the son of Laish. And her husband went with her, along, weeping behind her to Baurim. Then said Abner unto him, Go, return, and he returned. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, Ye sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel, out of the hand of the Philistines, and out of the hand of all their enemies. 
And Abner also spake in the ears of Benjamin. And Abner went also to speak in the ears of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel, and that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner came to David to Hebron, and twenty men with him. And David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go, and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, and that thou mayest reign over all that thine heart desireth. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So we have more text than we have time. We could obviously spend quite a few weeks in what we've just looked at, right? But we also said a few weeks ago that carnal people do nothing with pure motives, right? Abner was a carnal man. He was all about Abner at the end of the day. The house of Saul was waxing weaker and weaker, and the house of David was waxing stronger and stronger. And after the falling out with Ishbosheth, Abner could clearly see the writing on the wall. He could see it. His carnal agenda was not going to come to fruition. And so Abner now has to act on behalf of what's best for Abner. This ship is going down. My plan is crumbling. What I wanted, it's not going to happen, so i got to look out for me. And his carnality is evident in his tone in verses 12 through 21. As far as he was concerned, he was not only in charge, but he was in control. I mean, look at how he's talking. I mean, he is talking as if, listen, I mean, Israel as a whole was, you know, it wasn't so much that, that they were going to embrace David as their king because it was God's will. It wasn't so much of that. It was because Abner was going to make it happen. God wasn't going to make it happen. It it, it was up to Abner to ensure that it happened. Look at verse 12. Make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee to bring about all Israel unto thee. Verse 18. Now then do it. Abner was the kind of man, when he spoke, he expected people to listen and obey. And they did. (laughs) Verse 21, And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go, and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with you. Abner believed that he could make David king as easily as he made Isbosheth king. I mean, this man was full of pride and presumption. I mean, he was all about him. Again, he had a God complex. And this can happen in ministry leadership as we have discussed. So when we talk about keeping it simple, this is where it starts, okay, for all of us. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. When you talk about keeping it simple in life, keeping it simple in ministry, wait on the Lord. That's a very, or it has become, a very nasty thing. We are very impatient people. We want everything when we want it. We want it right here. We want it right now. And we're not waiting on anybody. We're presumptuous. 
We forge ahead. We help God out. Um, we, we make things happen, and then we put God's name on it. And then when it crashes and burns, we beg God to somehow rescue it and bless it. Like, I'm not waiting. I don't, <laughs> wait for what? Uh, consider Psalm 37, verse 34. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. Okay, so when we talk about waiting on the Lord, what we're talking about is resting in a godly expectation. We're resting in a godly expectation. So God has promised us something from his word, and we are resting while we're expecting the arrival of that. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. Notice, though, we are resting, not fretting. Resting, not forcing. Resting, not presuming. We're resting in a godly expectation. God promised it. God will do it. And it doesn't mean that we're idle while we're resting. Notice verse 34 again. And keep his way. That is, while we're resting in a godly expectation, we are continuing to walk in obedience to what God has made clear to us that we should be obeying. But we're resting. We're waiting on this thing that God's going to do, but God is... God has made his will clear to us in so many other areas of our lives that we're not dismissive toward those things. This is why waiting on the Lord is so very difficult for some. Because in trusting God for something, they put everything on hold until God responds to that desire. It's like, okay, God, I'm trusting you for this. I'm trusting you for that. And until you answer, until you come through on that, until that arrives, I will not be doing anything. I won't. I'm just going to sit and then I'm going to get frustrated and I'm going to get mad at you. And I'm going to take the lead and help you out and make something happen that I'm only going to regret. Because I want it now. But Abner was not the only one who was not waiting on the Lord here. Look at verse 13 again. This is David. And he said, well, I will make a league with thee, but one thing I require of thee, that is, thou shalt not see my face, except thou first bring him a call, Saul's daughter, when thou comest to see my face. Okay, so David, as we've discussed was already out of bounds by this point by multiplying wives and concubines. So if there's one thing he did not need was another wife. Like he did not need another wife. McCall had a special place in David's heart and the circumstances that you know, were involved with him losing her or her being taken from him would have been hard to swallow, for sure. It was unfair, it was not right. But listen, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that David wanted McCall 
brought back to him was because she was Saul's daughter. That was very important. And because she was Saul's daughter, God, let me help you out. If you really want me to be king over all Israel, you know what would help? Having Saul's daughter back. That'll help you out, right, God? Bring me and my wife back. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna add her, her to the lineup. So his motive here was, here we go, more so political than it was affectionate. And some of you are thinking, okay, here, there goes Kenny again with his anti-political rhetoric. Brothers and sisters, Solomon, his son, would later on marry for the same reasons, for political reasons, and oh my goodness, it led to his absolute ruin and destruction, and it wounded the nation unimaginably. Marrying for political reasons. Here's what everyone needed to understand, and it's what we must understand. This is so critical. Okay, we talked last week about God being sovereign. That is, he is supreme in power and in rule. And because of that, listen, God does not look to us to ensure that his promises get fulfilled. He doesn't. Boy, I really need Kenny to do this or do that, because if he doesn't, it's not going to happen. God does not look to us to ensure that his promises get fulfilled. God looks to see if we trust him to fulfill what he's promised to us. Do you trust me? Because if you trust me, you're not going to try and take matters into your own hands and make something happen. Oh my goodness, I have done that more than once in my life. It doesn't work. If you noticed, as the kingdom is being transitioned to David, no one is reported to have sought God. David did at the very beginning in terms of, God, would you have me to go to, to Judah? And then from there, what city in Judah? Okay, Hebron. But, but, but now, as this thing is ramping up, especially here, everybody's now moving and shaking, trying to you know, look out for themselves and make sure this happens and that happens one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn in ministry, and it, it is, I mean, this has been a hard one, is that I cannot make anyone think a certain way, I can't make them speak a certain way, and I can't make them behave a certain way. I can preach my guts out. I, I, I can sit with people and I can talk, but at the end of the day, I cannot make anyone do anything. And for some of us, we have yet to fully embrace that. And so we try to force people to think a certain way. We try to force them to speak a certain way. We, you know, if they just listen to us and if I can just lecture them and lecture them and lecture them and lecture them, eventually they'll say, okay, I get it now. No. If you want to flirt with losing your sanity, just go into the business of trying to change people. 
One of the things that a ministry that Lori and I enjoy, we enjoy very much, is premarital counseling. We, it's a ministry that we get to do together. And one of the things that we inform couples every time is that marriage is not a venue where we get to change people. You are not changing your spouse. That is God's job. God does that. And by the way, you want God to do that. (laughs) You want that to be a work of the Holy Spirit, a work of the Word of God in their life. You want that. I used to get so frustrated in those early years in our marriage when it's like, she's married to me, Mr. Wisdom. I got the goods, girl. Just listen to me. Just listen to me. If you listen to me and you do what I say, life's going to be great. I'd be banging my head against the wall. Like, I was like, I lectured her for 30 minutes. And a week later, it's like she's doing it again. She needs another lecture. So I would lecture her again. Maybe this time, 45 minutes. And it blew my mind. Three months later, she would come to me with tears in her eyes. I was reading my Bible, and God said this to me. And I'm like, no, I said that to you. <laughs> no. No, it was the Lord. And she sees it, and it's from the Lord. And, and guess what? It's about his glory, not mine. Consider Philippians 3.15. Paul said, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. So if someone was not pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, who did the Apostle Paul say would reveal that to them? Who? God, not him. There are some things that they need to see, and and I'm the one to show it to them. No. No, that's God. Listen, some need to realize that God desires our trust and obedience, not our help. Did you get that? God does not desire my help. How could someone omnipotent need help? How could someone omniscient need help? (laughs) They don't need help. We need help. (laughs) God says, I don't need your help. I don't need you to fix anybody. I don't need you to change anybody. I just need you to trust and obey me. But not waiting on God is what complicates everything, and it leads to others getting hurt. McCall's husband, Paltiel, was devastated by this. Verse 16 says he was weeping behind her as she was being taken from him. Listen, you know, in a room this size, there are some, you've got a presumptuous streak. 
So when you want something to happen, you're going to ensure that it happens. You're going to take the bull by the horns and you're going to get ahead of God and you're going to mix it up and you're going to, you know, do this over here and do that over there. And somehow this is going down. But you know what you're also going to do? Inevitably, people are going to get hurt. People are going to get hurt. Paltiel was devastated. I have hurt my family in times past because I did not choose to wait on the Lord. I've got it. I know what this family needs. I know what's best. I'm the husband of this family. I'm the leader of this family. I know what I'm doing. I got Bible verses to back me up. And when the dust cleared, God says, you, you, you ready to listen? You ready to listen? I just would not wait. I was presumptuous. Verse 22. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he was gone in peace. When Joab... And all the host that was with him were come. They told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he had sent him away, and he is gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that thou hast sent him away? And he is quite gone. Thou knowest Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee. And to know thy going out and thy coming in, and to know all that thou doest. And when Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Sarah. But David knew it not. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly, and smote him there under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. And afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And let there not fell from the house of Joab one that hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, slew Abner because he had slain their brother Azahel at Gibeon in the battle. We said a few weeks ago that Joab would be a name that you would not forget by the time you were done with 2 Samuel. May I introduce you to Joab? This was Joab. Very presumptuous man as carnal as Abner was. But I want us to pay close attention to Joab as we turn the pages because Joab is a picture of a carnal believer. If you want to see what a carnal believer looks like, let's just pay attention to Joab. His name means Yahweh is father. 
His problem was he didn't live like that. He didn't live like Yahweh was his father. Like Joab, God can be our father positionally. But it does not mean that that's how we live, right? Yeah, God's my father positionally. Uh, Positionally, yeah, I'm saved. I've been made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where I stand positionally. But in walk, I'm in charge, I'm in control. Joab was not pleased with learning that David, his king and superior, had apparently made peace with Abner. And he went on the attack against David, his king and uncle. What hast thou done? (laughs) Don't you know why Abner really came here? I mean, he accused David of wrongdoing. But for a number of reasons, his approach was carnal and foolish. Uh, We need to hear this verse. My starting with me, we all need to hear this. Look at Proverbs 18, 13. He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. It's just dumb. You don't do that. How familiar is this, though? Joab had heard from others about Abner's visit, but listen, had he spoken with David yet? Had he? No. (laughs) He had not spoken to David. He heard from others about this visit, and he takes that and runs into the presence of the king, which was no light thing and lights him up, essentially calling him an idiot. This is the king. This is the man who is over him. This is his uncle. But since he did not like what he heard, he didn't give David the benefit of the doubt. Nor did he approach David to discover, to learn, to inquire. He comes in, guns blazing with accusations based on hearsay. That's foolish. He basically accused the king of being foolish and gullible. But in reality, he was the fool because he hadn't heard from David. The issue was, this was very personal for Joab, wasn't it? It was very personal. Abner had killed his brother, Azahel. Here's the second thing. When we're talking about keeping it simple in life and keeping it simple in ministry, watch the lines. Watch the lines. One of the issues here was that Joab was viewing this entire situation personally, wasn't he? He was. But because of his position, David was viewing this entire situation nationally, wasn't he? He had to. 
For David, no disrespect to Azahel, but this was bigger than Azahel. This was bigger than Joab's personal hurt. It was bigger than that. For Joab, this was all about Azahel. But look at verse 30. Joab and, and, Isa, and, and Abishai slew Abner because he slew their brother Azahel. Very interesting. They did not slay Abner because he led a rebellion against God's will for David to be king. You see that? Abner led a rebellion <laughs> against David. Abner was the, responsible for leading most of the nation away from David against God's will, but that's not why they murdered him. It wasn't national, it was personal. This is about me. Hear this, what often leads to conflict in the church is when people think personally, not corporately. This is when we get conflict, most of the time. We are viewing something right here. And when we think personally, we start crossing lines. We do. Although he was personally hurt, Joab crossed a line in how he addressed the king. You don't march into the presence of the king and address him that way. You don't do that. From there, he went over the head of his king and murdered Abner. And this will not be the last time we see this. This is just an introduction to Joab. He's just getting started. So let me give you some points. Let me give me some points to help us stay between the lines because we all have to. Number one, disappointments do not entitle us to cross lines. Just because you got hurt, just because you didn't get your way, just because you're disappointed with something doesn't give you license to cross lines. And we do this all the time, don't we? My feelings got hurt. My toes got stepped on. I don't agree with the decision. So I'm going to go light Sam up. He's not Pastor Sam anymore. He's Sam. Be at peace with not being consulted. During this whole exchange between David and Abner, at, at no point did David say, hey, wait a minute, uh, can somebody go out and get Joab? Joab probably needs to be a part of this. I'm sure he's really, boy, this has got to be tough for him. No, he wasn't consulted at all, and that bothered him. Can I tell you, sometimes, on occasion, it's not a lot, but on occasion, I will get informed about a decision that has been made at the same time you are getting informed in the service. I wasn't consulted. My input wasn't asked, but a decision has been made. 
Sam does not need my permission to make a decision. Sam is gracious, and I am 95, 97% of the time, I'm at the table, and I'm a part of it. But Sam gets to make a decision. He doesn't have to check with me first or anybody else. Do not run with hearsay. Unless you have talked with all parties involved, be very careful with how you manage what you've heard. This is what I'm saying. We hear something and we take off with it. Somebody says something and it involves multiple parties, but we get very selective in our hearing at times, don't we? When we want to hear something, we hear it. Oh, yeah, that's how they are anyway. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that's exactly how it went down. Know that God is bigger than a bad decision. Like you, leaders are not perfect. It's amazing the standard that we hold people to. We, we hold people to standards that <laughs> we ourselves don't even live up to. And then we punish them when they don't meet those standards. The areas that they may have felt but they may have failed and fallen in, or areas that we ourselves are failing and falling in, even worse than them. But you know what? Yeah, but you know, let's white him up. Even though I'm doing the same thing or I've done that, let's blast him or her. So a decision doesn't quite work out. What doesn't need to happen is we don't need to go to 20 people to make sure they understood that from the beginning, you didn't see it. From the beginning, you didn't agree with it, and you knew it was going to flop. That's vainglory. No, what needs to happen is, you know what, God, will you use that to work it together for good? Not, I was right all along and they were wrong. Stay between the lines. Verse 31. And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed the bier or bed. And they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth? Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept again over him. And when all the people came to cause David to eat meat while it was yet day, David swore, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught else till the sun be down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel? And I am this day weak, though anointed king, 
and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, be too hard for me, the Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. The transition is in full swing here in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Verse 10, we get the first mention of the throne of David. Verse 18, the first time we see the phrase, my servant David, King David is first mentioned right here in verse 31. God's will is going down like we said it would. But just as David had eulogized Saul, who had treated him poorly, he did the same thing with Abner. This is almost a replay of chapter 1 in terms of how he honored Saul, who had treated him so terribly. And he strongly denounced the actions of his nephews, Joab and Abishai. But according to Joshua chapter 21 and verse 13, Hebron was a city of refuge which meant that Joab and Abishai were clearly out of bounds in taking vengeance on Abner here. They were outside the lines of God's word. Okay, you ready? Here's the third point, keeping it simple. Walk the line. Walk the line. Walking the line means that we do what we should do in a relationship according to God's word. That's what David needed to do here. This is very critical in leadership. Very critical. Very critical in parenting, right? Very critical. There are times in parenting when you got to walk the line where you got to say, you know what? At the end of the day... <laughs> This is what the Word of God says here about your behavior, about your attitude, and I'm going to hold you accountable to that. I'm going to walk the line. I have to. For your benefit, I have to. For God's glory, I must. Same in leadership. There are times when we're, we're leading people and we're dealing with people. Listen, I am going to walk the line. I have to. I am going to hold you accountable to what the Word of God says. I have to do that. Consider Exodus 21, verses 12 through 14. He that smiteth a man, so that he die, shall be surely put to death. And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither he shall flee. But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. Abner's murder was premeditated and malicious. It was. And David needed to walk the line according to God's word and deal with Joab and Abishai accordingly. Both should have been put to death. Both should have been put to death. Suddenly, the blemishes and David's leadership are starting to pile up, aren't they? If you're paying attention. Because I'm telling you, as you keep turning the pages, I guarantee you, in David's heart, there would have come a moment where he would have wished that he would have walked the line with Joab. Joab 
wounded him here deeply, but he had not wounded him as deeply as he's going to. You get toward the end of 2 Samuel, and he is going to tear David's heart out. In that sobering chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul was calling the church at Corinth to walk the line as it related to the man who had his father's wife. Paul was saying, he does not get to be here living like that. Walk the line. Deal with him. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Boy, that's sober. Hear this. In leadership, there are coaching moments, and there are moments that call for more than coaching. A parent, a pastor, a government official, a manager must be clear on when coaching is needed and when more than that is called for. Father, thank you for the simplicity of your word. Thank you for what you have shown us about how to keep it simple. These points are very simple, but yet, Lord, they are derived directly from your word as we saw. I do believe that we've all heard from you this morning in different ways about different things, but whatever we've heard, Father, would you help us to run with it? In Jesus' name, amen.